0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased to have with us Professor David Stahl. Professor Stahl is one of the leading authorities on German military history of the Second World War, and he is a senior lecturer in history at the University of New South Wales, and we are discussing his newest book, Hitler's Panzer Generals, Guderian, Hopner, Reinhardt, and Schmidt, Unguarded, published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome, Professor. Thank you very much for having me. Professor, what is the thesis of your book? Um,
0: So I guess that speaks to the genesis of the project. Um, If you're Listeners know anything about my past research. I've spent a lot of time doing operational and social history of the German army on the Eastern Front, and I've spent a lot of time particularly charting offensive operations through 1941, and of course, that necessitates an engagement with the panzer groups. Um, So the panzer generals have always been a feature for me, and that really then begs the question, probably one people don't normally ask, which is, if I've done all this past work, I mean, multiple books charting in a lot of detail, it's not just panzer groups, but it's looking at uh, army high command files, army group center or army group south or whichever army group files, panzer group files, the constituent corps and divisions, then what's left to say? Have I not already talked at great length about the generals themselves? And I probably would have said to you five years ago, yes, I have. I have zero plans, and that was certainly the case, to do any book on German Panzer Generals. The reality is all four of these guys have been mentioned at some length in the various works I've done. So really what is new here? What is that thesis? Why even do the book? That's the perennial question any historians really got to answer for a publisher because they wanna know what's new. And that's doubly true in my case because of all this previous work. Um, One of the strange things uh, is that this book is based on German generals letters and when I say that's strange you might say well if you've done all these detailed works why didn't the earlier ones look at a resource like private letters that seems such an obvious thing to look at it's not that I didn't know that they weren't uh, there I'd encountered them uh, at least in Guderian's case in researching for my PhD way back in the day but there are two really important points that one needs to understand First, and this is a very odd thing to say, they don't write in, uh, with an alphabet that Germans can read. And when I say Germans, I mean modern day Germans. That seems almost extraordinary, but late 19th century uh, school children in Germany were not reading and writing or learning to write uh, in a way that um, reflected a federalized education system. Remember, Germany hadn't been Germany. It was constituent smaller uh, political entities stretching right back to the Middle Ages. And a lot of those, even though there was since 1871, a Germany hadn't reformed the education system. So people learn to form letters in different ways in different parts of Germany. And the variance is quite wide. So as these young, uh, what would be the German generals of the Second World War. These young boys were learning to write. They hadn't had the benefit of any of the educational reforms that would begin at the beginning of the 20th century and actually continue right up until the Third Reich. They would continue with some of this um, uh, to, to make their handwriting easily accessible. So people struggle to read their letters, not just because cursive can always be a bit difficult, but because you have to really study... Um, the various, uh, the various uh, different handwriting scripts. So the one people typically talk about is something called Zitalin, but that's not what they wrote in, that's just the big Prussian reform of the early 19th century. Now that's just one problem I had, is as a graduate student, okay, just reading the letters would be difficult, right? So you have to invest a lot of, I mean, I could have done it then, invest the money to get them transcribed so I could read them. But there was a more important reason, and this is the second one, there's something called the ordinance on communication in the German army which basically stipulates what you are allowed to and what you're not allowed to write in a letter going home and it's, it's, it's very directive you're not allowed to mention officers you're not allowed to mention comrades you're not allowed to mention place names if you look through the, the various requirements it's very, um, it's very strict now knowing that exists it seemed to me back in the day and this supposition proved incorrect but it's what I believed. Well, if this ordinance on communication exists and that's for average everyday soldiers, it must count absolutely double for generals who are in possession of such uh, important information. Therefore, I could transcribe and pay all this money as a poor graduate student to get access to Guderian's letters and then just end up finding out about Auntie Bessie's variegous veins because he mustn't be able to discuss any of the important stuff that I would be interested in. Now, as I say, that assumption proved incorrect, uh, but I didn't know that at the time. So hence, I sort of carried on knowing these letters were there, but thinking, "Oh, there's probably nothing in them." And a lot of the other operational histories that I'd ever read never used them. Now, there's a wonderful book in German called uh, Hitler's Herdes Führer It's not been uh, translated, unfortunately, by Johannes Herter, and he was one of the first who alluded to, you know, he'd used these these letters. And in parts, although the book is not really about operational history. In parts where he does go into that, it was clear that there were sentences and passages here and there that, hang on, that's, that shouldn't be really in these German generals' letters. One could imagine, okay, well, maybe, maybe there's the odd sentence here or there that he's used. But it was really only about five years ago that in a different stage of life with money that I can access through the university that I managed to get a, a grant out of the university to say, Let's go and transcribe all of these letter collections and just see finally see what is actually in there and of course that's when i i will never forget the day i get this this email the person's you know gone and done all the work and 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 i and i sat there and i started reading and within about two or three pages i think it was guderians who i was reading first i just knew oh my god oh my god i've missed something really important this stuff is gold um, but not just for what I would have done back in the day. Back in the day, I was interested in operational questions. I'm not telling a biographical story. I'm telling a much bigger story about a much bigger campaign. And one of the virtues of the way it's all worked out is, as I read on through the letters, it just became clear there's a lot of personal details here about these men themselves that wouldn't really fit into an operational account. It's not about any individual. It's not about who they are, or what they think. It's about a much bigger story. So making this a book very much and very specifically about the German generals was just a great opportunity. And it was kind of that moment where you realise, OK, I've spent all this time working on these guys and I thought I'm done with it, but clearly I'm not. And, and you know, um, I found it a really fun project to work on. But I guess coming back to the question, what's the thesis? There's just such rich detail, uh, detail that we don't have from biographies, not uh, context for the operational accounts, uh, that shows us a lot about who these men are I think one last important point to mention in terms of how we view these letters is that unlike you, what you might imagine a modern-day general or I don't know an American commander in Afghanistan or something if he wrote private letters he probably writes them with a may well be published but that's not how these letters are written there's not a sense that oh one day someone will be reading these for historical purposes in that sense, I think they're just really valuable uh, they tell us a lot about the different areas that we engage with these men, not just the military stuff, but who they are, how they understand their world, how they uh, conceive of their own future and how they're career building. Um, these are all really important themes that came out. Um, so, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, unpack that. And in some ways, I felt like with all the context that I have, Having worked so much on, on the Panzer groups Center and, and around what these men were involved in, I thought I'm probably one of the best placed people to do it. Um, but again, there's just a lot here that uh, if someone had read my earlier works, not that I'm trying to sell anything, but there is a lot of meat on the bone. There's a lot of
1: new material, hence why I wanted to do it. Could you briefly outline these four passage generals for the audience? I think most of uh, the listeners probably know who Guderian was. I doubt they know who the other three were. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I think that's one of the virtues of a book like this. Um, you know, if you think about a core commander in 1941, the, the, the best example is obviously Rommel. He's the guy people know. If you imagine, yeah, Rommel is an important guy, but he's important because the Anglo-American world are interested in, not surprisingly, the general that we fight against. And that's all Rommel is in 1941. He's a core commander, um, there are 44 corps on the Eastern Front, and I don't think many people could name really any of them. But that's also part of the reason why this project is so interesting. We actually don't have very much private correspondence from German generals. Um, believe it or not, there's about 1,800 if you bother to go through and take Major General as the lowest ranking general. Um, And I certainly haven't done that systematically for every single one of them. In fact, you know, probably people are surprised there are that many. Many of them aren't necessarily in command positions where we would know them. There's also staff positions and, you know, obviously back in Germany and so on. But what's interesting about these guys is that they are directly comparable. Um, There's very good primary material, which, as I say, doesn't exist for most of them. And they are fighting uh, at the same time... um, in the um, on the eastern front and they all obtain panzer group command in 1941 so they don't have it necessarily at the beginning of the campaign only Hoepner and uh, and Guderian are panzer group commanders there are two others um, uh, Kleist and and Hort but they don't have any private letters and then Reinhardt and Schmidt will reach that uh, goal there's only six of them therefore in 1941 and we have the letters of four of them and so we're not comparing someone who fought in, I don't know, 1944 in a different circumstance, in a different area, at a different time. These men are looking at similar circumstances uh, at the same time. In many cases, they're interacting with each other. So there are moments in the letters where they're writing about other generals. It gives us an opportunity to uh, not just look at who they are as individuals, but to make a comment, perhaps for that time in the war, on the Panzer Trooper more generally. So, what is the culture? What is individual and what is culture? And so, there are themes that 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 we can see between them that you can probably then extrapolate uh, to um, to the rest of the the you know the, the Panzer Trooper. And and certainly when we know so much about people like Rommel, we start to understand. Okay, Rommel isn't uh, an anomaly. What he's doing and what people know of Rommel tends to be very much what we see in these other four men. So again, uh, how much is individual? How much is culture? And I think gives us an insight into that. One other quick thing I might just say before I quick give a very basic bio on them because I know that's the question. Um, There is a fifth person in this book who's not mentioned in the subtitle and wasn't actually part of the original plan, but is just too good to miss. Um, When I got into the personal papers of Guderian, uh, his wife's letters... Some of them to him are also there. There's only 13 of those in total, I think, for all of the other four generals. We have about, i top of my head, about 130, if you put them all together. They're from 1941, 1942, or beginning of 42. And I, although there are other letters from some of them in other parts of the war, I've kept the book, although we do range around a little bit, um, I've kept the book largely focused on that period, because again that's where they're directly comparable but Margaretha has 13 letters also from this period it is the first time that we have any insight at all into a german general's wife which i think is really important because we get to see what's coming back to guderian and the uh the various people i spoke to who have done work either you know, on the sort of social composition of the german army or uh, women in Nazi Germany and so on. And I wouldn't want to say that's exhaustive that it's exhausted, but I've spoken to everybody. But put it this way, no one's ever been able to point me to any research and happy to have emails from people and prove this wrong. But also there were three peer reviewers for the Cambridge book. Nobody suggested anything or was able to say, hey, you've missed some kind of contextualizing secondary resource on German generals' wives. There's a lot on Nazi women um, and elite Nazi women but the German general's wives are just a black hole. And for people who sometimes say to me, oh, like, World War II, it's all been done, David. I'm often very sceptical of that view, um, as I think people well-read are. Uh, but this is certainly one of those areas where I just didn't know of anything. And then I read the letters, and I see a lot of very real virtue in, in, in understanding what Margrethe's view is. Why do I say that? I know I'm going on a bit of a tangent here, but just indulge it, because it, I'm sort of started down this path. Um, why is Margareta so important? Um, she is described by Heinz Gunther, that is Heinz Guderian's son, who himself goes into the Bundeswehr after the war. He's actually in the Wehrmacht as well. And he becomes um, uh, a senior general in the Bundeswehr. So he knows military. And he commented in the 1970s to a biographer of his father that his mother served as a quasi-chief of staff. There was always a bit of an, you know, what does that mean? But he doesn't use that term probably frivolously. He probably has a very real idea, unlike perhaps a lay person, of what that term might mean. That's a very important staff position. It's the single most important for a commander. His chief of staff is the guy doing the organising. I always wondered, well, what does that exactly mean about his mother? Now we have the letters. And there is one golden passage in there where she is giving Heinz an unambiguous directive about how he's got to manage himself for manoeuvring politically to one day perhaps take on the position of Chief of the Army General Staff. It's happening in the aftermath of Braultich, the commander of the German army, being fired. And she's, she's very coy in the letter because she doesn't want to write this down. Remember, in Nazi Germany, women's position is in the home. And here she is basically saying, look, Braulkech's departure will have implications for your activities and we need to talk. I can't talk to you on the phone. She knows why people listen in to telephone calls. That's normal. Um, even other staff members will be listening in. There's multiple telephones and there's not security there. So she's not doing it there and she's very coy in the letter itself, but she's basically saying to him, I've got things you need to hear also because she's plugged into a Berlin circle of wives she's dealing with very important people not least of which Keitel's uh, wife um, Kesselring's wife other people who are you know well to do and uh, have information Um, and all that means is when I say there's a fifth person in this book it's not just any old person well okay fine uh, uh, one of the wives is in there It turns out if she is any litmus test whatsoever for who the wives are, they have a lot of agency. They have a lot of uh, uh, um, uh, importance. They are circulating, well, it depends, I guess, where you live. But certainly, um, uh, uh, Margrethe Guderian is moving in circles where she assists her husband. She is not immaterial to his success. Um, And I could go into more detail on that. Maybe I'll leave it at that very briefly our four german generals um as i say they're all panzer group commanders or before that in the case of schmidt and reinhardt they are panzer uh, Corps commanders so they deal with um uh you know the, the next level down they deal with in in schmidt's case um uh, hort he's in panzer group three and reinhardt is dealing with herpen as i said before these men are discussing each other and not always favorably in fact overwhelmingly they tend to view other commanders negatively um, it's a real dog-eat-dog world and they are often presenting themselves to their wives as oh, i'm the only one who knows what's going on this guy's making mistakes that guy's making mistakes um, it's not this uh, it's not a supportive environment it's a very competitive environment and they see a lot of the problems in fact i would say the vast majority of problems operationally not as the sorts of things that we as historians are able to perhaps assess better because we have access to so much more data. We're reading all the different files and we can see how many, you know, logistical problems or intelligence problems or, you know, those kinds of things that are undermining the campaign. That's not what these guys discuss. They typically discuss problems in terms of so-and-so's made the wrong decision. So-and-so's hogging all the resources. And that's because so-and-so's made a decision to, to give them this. And I'm the one always being left out. They're, they're very glass half empty on their colleagues and they see the problems of the Eastern Front very much in terms of um, poor decision-making from above that is handicapping their ability to have success. Um, And maybe as a final point on that, in one of the sections I actually bothered to go through and sort of word search, how often do these guys talk about key problems that we now all accept are fundamentally undermining the Barbarossa campaign. So if you use something like logistics or supply and you look for these words in all their letters, you find, I can't remember the exact numbers, but you find very few references. So they're just not talking about that element, even though a lot of the letters um, are talking about uh, the lack of success or the problems that they're having, they're just, I would say, misdiagnosing a lot of it. They they attribute it to poor command. Um, and, the, and the incorrect allocation of resources um, rather than a lot of the things that we would typically be looking for. They just don't seem to be aware of them or they
1: don't discuss them. And I think that speaks to some of the problems they're having. What do these letters tell us about the inner world of these four men and their families? Yeah, so the first, um, well, not the first, but I think the second
0: chapter deals with the, what I call the private generals. In some ways I think that's kind of one of the most interesting aspects of doing a project like this because you know talking about uh, their involvement in criminality or talking about their involvement in the military campaigns that's what people expect it felt like some of the uh, the opportunity here is to try and unpack who are they and uh, that family side comes out a lot so for example um, Guderian uh, actually has two sons who are on the Eastern Front. And um, uh, it, it, Herpener does as well. The other two generals, they don't. Reinhardt has only daughters. Schmidt never had any children. Um, but what's particularly interesting for me is, again, trying to get a picture of who these guys are. Guderian, uh, he, he, he wants to write one of his children, and this is, I think, I'm doing this a bit from memory, at the end of July 1941. So Barbarossa's been going on for five weeks. His sons are, um, are uh, junior officers in other uh, areas of the front. So um, Kurt is in, is in Army Group North, so up near fighting toward Leningrad. Well, not quite yet at Leningrad in July, but uh, but on that path in, through the Baltic states. And then his other son, uh, Heinz Gunther, is down in um, Army Group South. Now, in order to send someone a letter on the Eastern Front, you must have their field post number. It's not possible to do it any other way. You can't just write their name and say what units they are. You have to have this field post number. And he wants to write to one of them, but realises he doesn't have the number. So he writes to Margareta, basically kind of having to... It's clear that he's, he's having to uh, uh, apologise for not having it. He's been away from home for, I don't know, I couldn't find out exactly how many weeks... So before the Barbarossa campaign, how many weeks or months had he been in the in the East in preparation for this big campaign? But it, clearly, in that time, he'd never written either one of his children, and nor had he done it in the in the five weeks uh, since the campaign had begun. He's seen how high the casualties are in young um, officers, and uh, and it's never made him think. Oh, I wonder how my kids are going. He's not written them. He gets the the. Uh, the, the field post number, and he does write back. But throughout the rest of the year, he constantly asks Margaretta for information about the boys. He just doesn't seem to have much of a relationship. Now that could tell us, okay, well, you know, times were different, David. The, you know, the the the, the male uh, situation between fathers and sons was a lot more detached. Only that's not at all reflected by uh, by Hoopina. is the complete opposite. His son Joachim is fighting in the 6th Army, so Hopener is up in, in, in Baltic states, our Panzer Group 4 commander. And he is constantly badgering uh, the 6th Army for information about his son. Uh, and he is upsetting them. He's writing to his wife, Eva, that oh, there are no friends in this war. People don't help anybody. I'm constantly making inquiries and nobody likes it. Um, he then goes through the high command. When the high command, when he's talking to them, he's like, hey, could you, would you mind going through and asking more and asking questions again? He's also working the, the, the network to try and get his son onto a course um, to get him off the Eastern Front. So doing as much as he possibly can to keep him safe and to find out information. And Guderian's just very different. These kinds of inf- This kind of information we just don't have. We also have a lot about what they're doing in their free time so Guderian is uh, buying artwork and spending quite a lot of time perusing these these manuals uh, these, these publications that offer uh, um, you know very expensive artwork that in itself tells us something they're actually paid and this work has been done sort of two two three decades ago uh, they're actually paid bribes so they're given private money that's not accountable from uh, any other normal resource, it's not part of their army pay. It's coming literally directly from Hitler's private secretary. Um, extra money for being Colonel General um, or a Field Marshal. They get certain stipulations. I think it's 2,000 Reichmarks a month extra for being Colonel General, which is what Guderian and Herpener are. The others not yet. Um, but it's very interesting that we can see Guderian is spending a lot of money buying a lot of things, buying expensive things. And Hoopner is doing similar things. He's buying a lot of alcohol. And he's not allowed to. Like There are supposed to be um, rations and things like that. So he's having to write to his wife to say, hey, you've got to organize this and you know, mention me. And in other words, there's a network here that allows us to do things that we're not really supposed to do. But they've got the money to do it. Um, there's also no information when we get Margaretta's le- letters that she is having to observe any of the stipulations. She doesn't line up for food. She doesn't, um, you know, there's no shortages for them. They, uh, in fact, you know, she's spending money too. She's writing about what she's buying as Christmas presents, which are very nice Christmas presents. She engages people to um, to, 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 paint a portrait of her. Um, and, uh, and so clearly there's a, there's a, there's a revealing side to... How they spend their time and and the benefits and the privileges of rank as well as the, the money that comes along with that. But this also, I think, um, when you look at how they're indulging that, introduces a problem that people say, Oh, well, what does that all mean though? That's just all that's just all whatever. If they enjoy all of this, there is an, an inherent tension in being good commanders. When, if you have a lot to lose, and I think this is the, this is exactly why Hitler is paying this kind of money, then you are not interested in passing on information that is going to set your career back because they're building careers. They're not ending them. They are absolutely laser focused on achieving that next rank. And they are very much comparing each other as well. They are very upset when others are getting awards. They are aware of it. They write about it. So, for example, Schmidt gets uh, uh, the Oakleys to the Knight's Cross. Uh, Guderian gets the Oakleys to the Knight's Cross in July of 1941. Herpener is writing to his wife complaining that this recognition that these other men have been given makes him look bad in front of his officers. Uh, and he writes about the fact that, you know, luckily no one said anything so far, which is also interesting. Again, if it's about the culture here, they are very aware who's got what, and it's not taken as a representation of just the man. It's taken as a representation of the whole unit. In fact, Felix Rumer has done some amazing work in his uh, book, which is now in English, uh, a book called Comrades. I can only recommend that book. It is, it is just, it is, it's a joy to read. But it's also very revealing in, in terms of this kind of culture. And he picks up on a lot of these ideas. And once you read that and then you look at these letters, uh, I see a lot of, uh, of cross-pollination. Um, so, look, understanding that private world is, I think, uh, no matter what angle one engages with these men, it is just a gift that never stops giving. In fact, perhaps there's one little point for the, for the history people out there. Um, you know, one of the things I started to, to find myself doing was I read the letters, of course, when I first got them. And then, you know, six months later, and I thought, oh, this is very interesting. I have to do a project on this. This is really great. I bothered to reread them, but I bothered to reread them after doing a lot of secondary reading. I'm reading about things that I wouldn't normally encounter, things like sexuality in the um, national social estate. I wanted to investigate the idea of how intimate are these letters and what was allowed in that time. I read about masculinity in the national social estate. Social psychology became a big thing for me. And as I was reading these things, I then would go back every six months and reread, no matter how much I didn't want to, reread every letter top to bottom and each time I found the virtue of doing that, so many more things would come out. Um, I just started a really rich process. And again, you know, it was something we know objectively, but we don't always do. That, you know, being as interdisciplinary as you possibly can, reading outside your area, I don't mind saying some of the stuff I read in some of these other fields, I thought, well, I'll leave that one on the shelf. But sometimes there was some very real gold in there. And these people are never talking about my German generals. They're just talking about this phenomena inside the the national social estate, and you know how privacy works and how the the private world works. But sometimes I could see things in there, so I thought, oh, I've got the context and I've got this wonderful source material, and it just it just enriched the whole process. And um, you know, I, I hope at least uh, will be of real value to historians
1: and students. How much of what you refer to as the public generals was manufactured, and how much was such publicity? Part and parcel of public culture in the Third Reich?
0: Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, You know, I didn't really have a concept for what this book would be before I started writing it. And I've never written a book that's thematic. In fact, I've never wanted to write a book that's thematic. And my early, probably first year of working on this, I was convinced I'm going to do this chronologically because that's the way that it works. And it just wasn't feasible because uh, as I kept responding to, and it had to be always about those letters. There was so much in there that talked about career building that I started to realize uh, the conceptions got to reflect, um, uh, firstly, you know, this private idea, then secondly, this public idea. That's the whole, I think it's the third chapter, uh, talking about the public generals. And so you're right to ask, you know, what does that mean? We always think, or at least perhaps I always used to think, um, maybe now with a few more years in my own life experience of working in a university things like this might sound naive but i used to always think well people who get promoted get promoted based on aptitude right they're being assessed against some sort of criteria that's why people are promoted into these top ranks however true or untrue that is i think i'm more skeptical on that idea but that was always the the sense i had And I probably would have said the same 10 years ago about German generals, right? On some level, although I was already aware from some of my working on some of these guys, there's a huge disconnect between what they think is happening and what is happening. But suddenly that makes more sense to me. This idea of success is extremely contrived and they kind of get it. It's quite an explicit process. They are writing about Having to win the kind of media war, they are vying for all forms of media, understanding that the success you have in that area is directly linked to your success in your career. In fact, military performance is somewhere in their distant second. It doesn't really matter. It only really matters what your uh, what, what the opinion is of the people in the, the personnel, ump, that's important. You've got to work the network, and you need to have notoriety. You need to be out there. Guderian is a master at that. I am not ever seen to be someone who's a big fan of Guderian. I mean, he's, you know, complicit in a lot of war crimes, but he's also, I would say, as a general, he's very blinkered. He has a lot of shortcomings. But in this area, or oh, he understands how it works. So too does Rommel. I would say much less of the others, But that's not to say they're not aware of the process and aren't trying to work it. They're just not as successful. So the idea of self-promotion looms extremely large in your success as a German general. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, Guderian, in his letters, this is something I'd never read anywhere before, he is engaging, and I've forgotten the name of the guy, a, a famous writer in Nazi Germany. He's obviously a National Socialist. Uh, he you know he's written a lot of things it's it's rabid Nazi material about Hitler and so on Um, but he's engaged him because he is a popular author for the time invites him to the Eastern Front and has him in his staff I couldn't figure out exactly how long at least about a week maybe longer and he's telling him all these stories and the the relationship here is very clear you will write a biography of me and the guy has agreed to this and Guderian is therefore taking time again. It's very interesting what they're doing. We always think they're just directing the war all the time. Well, he certainly wasn't writing his sons, but he was definitely interested in, in managing a process which could get a major book out all about Guderian, very much in the war, right, to facilitate his career. Now, the manuscript is produced in record timing. I don't know, maybe six weeks later, Margrethe is writing to Heinz having been sent the manuscript. This biographer has also visited her for more information, and Margareta is not impressed. It's too tabloidy, too... Um, he's talking also about soldiers, and he's interviewed soldiers, and she doesn't like this. This is not about Heinz. This is talking about them. Suddenly, what is this book about? And it's just too um, too familiar. She says, my Prussian sense of morality is... Perhaps because he's talking about their relationship, which is actually really close. They are very, very much in love. And that also comes out There's a, a very intimate side to Guderian's letters. Um, uh, and she doesn't like this. We don't actually get any passages. And the book never sees the light of day. Basically, Guderian goes back. She writes quite some length about this. Guderian basically goes back and says, look, if you don't like it, again, this idea maybe she is his chief of staff, then that's it. We're terminating it. I don't want bad press. I need good press. Um, and that's gone. But perhaps to talk about some of the others just quickly, uh, Schmidt is engaging a, 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 um, a journalist who writes things that you start to see how low the bar is for journalism. I mean, it's just dripping with, um, uh, I think it's published in, in, in Tüdingen, so it's the state of Germany. It's in, in their newspaper. So it's, it's not national news, but uh, it, it's, it's absolutely uh, fawning Uh, when it comes to Schmidt I mean he's the the center of everything and he runs everything and he is so successful Um, and they view this kind of propaganda as um, two things remember in the National Socialist state there's a very real idea of this primacy of will so if we imagine you know why are they successful well in a modern sense we'd see the confluence of a lot of different factors in the national social state, the idea of leadership looms extremely large. The, 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 the Fuhrer myth isn't just about Hitler. There is a, a, a Fuhrer myth at, at, a, at a lower level as well. And these commanders indulge that. Um, and remember, there's so much of this, and it's so often reduced to this singular guy, um, that they are themselves, uh, I think, believers in this idea. Reinhardt at one point in one of his letters starts talking about the fact that, well, I used to have a division and it had a terrible reputation and it was transferred to me. And I basically went along there and gave a big motivational speech. And now that division is performing so much better and does all these things. He's really attributing it, as, as kind of ridiculous as that might sound, to I gave the speech and they're now under me and I'm such a good commander. And hey, are we surprised we're seeing results? Um, so this idea of, 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 you know, the force of personality you know leading to success is something they believe in i think it's it's more than just a a concept that they're constructing but they are also explicitly interested in this so they want to be in illustrated magazines they want to be in newspapers there's also front newspapers they are taking note of those too hoping is giving interviews for the front newspapers Um, and they are uh, particularly interested in getting into national media so the, the pinnacle, I guess, would be the Wagenstrahl, this, this uh, news wheels that play in German cinemas. And again, Guderian's very successful in doing this. In fact, it's very interesting if you know the military history of Barbarossa that when they start talking about the Battle of um, Smolensk or the Battle of Kiev, if you know anything about how the campaign operates, it's Guderian linking up with Hort or linking up with Kleist. There is no mention of Kleist or Hort. It's all about Guderian. And one of the sequences, I can't remember which one, he's on screen. I think I counted it for the book, you know, is a 35 seconds? And it's all about General Guderian has done all these wonderful things. And he is, well, anyone who knows the campaign, it's as important to have one arc of the Pincer movement as it is any other. So why is it he's there? He's got the relationships and he is seeking this out. There is a propaganda company attached to every Panzer Group, as well as every army. Um, but they're particularly interested in, um, in following these men. And these men are posing for cameras. Herpener talks about it a lot. Uh, Guderian talks about it a lot. The others only get that access later because they only get into Panzer Group Command. They don't have access earlier. Um, Herpiner is far less successful in doing this. Um, Guderian has lots of photos. They go into his private papers. Lots of uh, unpublished photos that he has from this propaganda company, and you just see it if you start going through um, uh, the, the the National Socialist media. In some ways, I think the success of the man is the fact that we, you know, as you started with one of these questions, you know, we know about Guderian. We do know about Guderian. Guderian's military career in the East is basically June twenty second to the twenty sixth of uh, December. He's never again in command of actual forces. He goes on and has other commands as inspector of panzer troops and, uh, and I think chief of the army general staff, but um, he is not, um, he is not uh, in command of other formations. And men like Reinhardt, when you think about it, he's relatively unknown. Well, his career on the Eastern Front extends well longer. He goes right through to January of 45. He becomes the commander of Army Group Center. He wins all kinds of awards. And yet he's relatively unknown. Now, why is that? It's not because he doesn't have a lot of agency and a lot of high level commands, army commands and more senior right through the war. And he's got personal papers and he's got a um, a, a diary as well that we can look at. So there's material to use. It's not like we just don't have anything to study. But he never managed that message and he's not a known name not in the war and even after the war kind of a bit forgotten that's not a comment on his importance it's a comment on how well Guderian managed that message and frankly I'd go one step further the book doesn't just deal with 41 but Guderian he gets fired in 20 on the 26th of December in disgrace he's gone against orders how does his career get put back on track how is that possible I mean, others like Herbner were fired in January of 42, never re-employed, disgraced. Uh, That's part of the reason he joins the the conspiracy against Hitler. Um, That's his way back in, right? He's going to be head of the Home Army, such as we understood uh, his role. Guderian is working the network. He's got the connections. He is definitely a national socialist. He knows how to play that game. And he gets himself into the highest positions, but perhaps the best is not just his later record in the war it's what happens after the war for a man who has reinvented himself many times you could also say that between uh, the you know the, the the period before the war because he has success in that period too it's a different germany right it's different the weimar state and then the early nazi periods he's constantly climbing because he's a bit of a chameleon and he understands the role that media plays but after the war he does a complete 180 suddenly he's no longer a nazi suddenly he was never on hitler's i mean unbelievable he could manage that narrative because look at his career look at what he's involved in Do you know he has, uh, he has Christmas with Himmler in 1944 because he knows who he has to work with but all of this gets tra- changed after the war into him being a complete anti-nazi and because he dealt with little Hart and other such people again managing the message through the media putting out his memoir he got remembered, not just remembered, but remembered in a very positive way until people started doing substantive studies in the 1990s. Now, that's success um, when you have a very, an indefensible record, both as a military commander and, frankly, as a human being. Um, but Guderian did it. You, you have to imagine that uh, he was uh, extremely good at that process.
1: How much were these four individuals involved, directly or indirectly, with the crimes of the Third Reich? um
0: they are deeply deeply complicit um so one of the uh best benchmarks of that because of course criminality is a huge concept right and there's a lot of different forms it takes and in this chapter i don't mind saying you know if people said to me well how much how much is in the letters around criminality yeah the reality is not uh, it's not like they are right about this kind of stuff they're selling themselves to their wives and they're good men as they as they understand it it's one of the things i learned from reading all my social psychology that people always project a very positive view or i guess they're not too surprised by that of themselves um and so they're not talking about the criminality that they themselves are observing and in some cases deeply complicit in at the same time they didn't write these letters with a view to the future, and they're not always aware of the language they use. So there are terms in there. In fact, at one point, Reinhardt talks about, um, I can't remember exactly what he uses, but it's something like, oh, yeah, that's right. He says, these, these, these Bolsheviks, um, you know, the, part of the reason why we'll be so successful is because they're also Jewified. I mean, so obviously anti-Semitic. And yet he just, he, 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 he put that into his letters, and he donates the letters to the to the archive, right? I think that still happens in his time. Uh, his collection is the first one we get. Um, so he obviously doesn't see a problem with that term. That's still an accepted term. That's kind of helpful because it means although there's the possibility that there's censorship on their letters, that's something else we could unpack, but there is that possibility, something I've had to, to try and unpack, and, I, and, and, and there's nothing explicit in it. and There's no family narrative or anything like that that allows me to confirm it. At the same time, I'm almost sure that there is um there has been a culling of the letters of the collections before they were ever donated um whether that was by the generals themselves or by the families but it's quite sure and anyway i won't go into how that uh how i know all that but but there's a, a way you can uh, go through that and, and discover this process um uh charles just remind me what was i just talking about i've gone on a tangent uh you were an- answering the question oh, yeah, the about complicity yes indeed um so if we imagine, for example, the Commissar Order, um, this is one of the, the touchstone criminal orders of 1941. And thanks uh, again to this Felix Romer, who in a completely different book, this is why he's such a, 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 a leading person in, in, in study of the Wehrmacht, he did the most comprehensive work on the Commissar Order. And what he allows us to do, is because he, he literally spent, I don't know how long it was, two years in the military archive you know, from opening to closing because that's when I first met him and he was just reading literally everything. Never underestimate what a claim that is because there is no war that's larger than this one in terms of sheer millions of men taking part and that leads to a phenomenal amount of paperwork. Anyone who ever makes the claim to expertise, well, there's a hell of a lot of reading to to, to get through in order to, to substantiate that claim. Well, he did. He read through all of the reports for all of the divisions and corps and armies um, for 1941-42 for the life of this, pen, for this, life of this uh, commissar order and wanted to detail exactly uh, how many instances of this there were. So he was able to come up with you know, not, not, not some sort of test case study that people had been doing previous to him, you know, I'll study this, this sample size and this is what I see from it, but something comprehensive. Um, and basically, the, 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 the result was 80% of all these divisions have categorical evidence of implementing the Commissar Order. Now, if you look at Guderian's memoir, he categorically states, well, I was uh, affronted by this and I was never going to pass it on and I made that extremely clear. And he goes on at some length to make that clear. Munstein um, does the same in his uh, memoir. Uh, what is the truth? Because we can take rumours... Um, uh, empirical evidence and charted against the divisions and against the corps. Well, it turns out that all of the panzer group commanders are in the top ten. Uh, so these four panzer commanders of the uh, 44 corps commanders overall. Oh, sorry. Uh, sorry. If we take all the corps, there are 44 corps on the Eastern Front. Two of our guys are panzer corps commanders. Um, uh and they're in the top 10 in fact i believe schmidt is number one he is the most ubiquitous in terms of killing commissars, um, and he's sometimes presented also as a kind of you know huber has this reputation of being like hey, the anti-nazi general because he did join the conspiracy in 1944 or maybe as early as 43 i don't know exactly when he gets recruited but he is shoulder to shoulder with the criminality before then his cause also rank in the top 10 um and uh Herbener even has uh i'm not sure exactly which file it comes from if it's from panzer group four or if it's from um, iron that's grouper r that's the the the, the 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 sd killing squad in his area where they write about him as being oh yeah general hopen is wonderful we have a very cordial relationship with him do they have knowledge of what does Herbener have knowledge of what they're doing absolutely um this criminality begins or this, this, this mass murder begins in the earliest days of the campaign and certainly we know that there's an an explicit order we don't know exactly when it's communicated it's probably oral but it's happening uh, late july early august um, where they're targeting all soviet jews Uh, and again huppenden knows about this so not exactly an anti-nazi commander or at least if he ever became that and it's not convinced i'm not convinced he ever really became that uh, it certainly was a transition much later in the war there was no moral outrage at what was going on there so that's but all of these men um, are involved and deeply involved in the commissar order and that we can categorically show in spite of the fact and again it speaks to men like Guderian Munchstein also uh, representing this completely um, differently after the war but again if they're if they're good at managing the message they're aware okay this is you can't ever admit to this and if people ever wonder why wasn't that check and balance made at the time Remember, we didn't have access to the German files, as in the military files, the things that people like Kielich Romer were using, until the 1960s. Um, they don't get back to, to Germany and become publicly accessible until that time. That does still pose a very real question around people doing work. There were biographies, very popular uh, number of biographies written about people like Guderian in the 1970s. And I guess it speaks to, yeah, well, they were doing their work, but... Uh, They weren't going back to the files and they probably weren't even asking themselves questions around criminality If you look at how these things are written, they're extremely positive That reflects I think the lack of research that was being done But also the fact that you know historiography has told us there's been so much good work since the 1990s around The criminal Wehrmacht that I don't even know if those guys had the language to really think about those things I mean, I think there was enough out there to look at Roald Hilberg and people like that who've been doing work uh, to, that they should have asked more of those questions. But, um, but yeah, uh, there's, there's a lot of, I think, interesting, uh, information there. Also, maybe like as a final point, when we're talking about criminality for silences, it's one of the things we teach graduate students. You're not just looking for evidence, you know, when it's very easy to say, I can prove this because here it is. But if we can prove, as that chapter's trying to do, look how much these guys are involved in the anti partisan warfare, the scorched earth tactics in, in the winter retreat. Uh, Obviously, Commissar Order, Barbarossa Jurisdiction Decree, and not least of which the Holocaust itself, which is unfolding in their areas of command. The fact that there is not a single word about any of these things in 140 letters, is that because they didn't write about it? Or is it because, as I said before, yeah, very likely these guys are editing their own letters before they ever get out. So these letters aren't... Um, uh, you know, they, 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 they're purposefully produced to present a certain side to who they were, which also poses the question, what's in the letters that we know didn't make it into the public record? And I know that there were letters that didn't make it into the public record, uh, particularly because I have Margrethe's letters and she refers to letters that Heinz wrote on certain dates that are not in the collection, whatever happened to them. They clearly made it back to Germany. She clearly got them. She clearly read them, but they're not in the record. I mean, maybe they got lost, but maybe there was a lot of editing as well.
1: Would it, overall, would it be true to say that these four generals fit the stereotype of German commanders as brilliant technicians and flawed strategists?
0: Yeah, w- one of the things we have to be careful of is when we engage with... The military terms that you know we consider what they mean uh, a tactician you know is a is a at the, sort of the lower end you know it's what the, the obviously the soldiers and, and, the, and the junior officers are involved in, in managing tactics they're typically seen at least in the, the 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 long history of the historiography the military historiography as being exceptionally good operationally and you're absolutely right Uh, They're questioned much more at the strategic level uh, Do they understand war in a strategic sense? And I think the, the chorus of opinion is no, they don't My work, and I think the letters again would confirm this I think it was something that had come up as an earlier theme But there's just more meat on the bone in these letters to substantiate this view Is that their understanding operationally is not as good as again When we go back to those earlier histories That was often suggested um, they just don't seem to understand the fundamentals of their, own, um, of their own, I guess, operational mechanics. So obvious things, or at least it would be obvious to us, like, well, if you're going to set an objective, you must have certain amounts of fuel, you must have certain amounts of ammunition, you must, you must plan for these things. The staff work, those guys in the background, what are they doing? They're, they're, they're shuffling all these numbers. The problem is the disparity between what they themselves tell, because we can look at it, we can go through the files, we can find this stuff. And they're often saying, yeah, the the, the sum of this equation doesn't add up. We can't do it. But they are ordering these things anyway. In fact, they're very disconnected from that discussion. And that is often a hard one for us to understand. How are they ordering things that are demonstrably impossible in many cases certainly by the end of the war or oh, sorry the end of 1941 they are pushing extremely hard for very very little gain um, they are observing and they're writing about how burnt out their forces are they talk about going into hospitals and seeing so many of their men and how heart-wrenching it is to have to give these iron crosses and 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 to know just what the men have been through and then in the next sentence they can write about well, I'm ordering the next attack on so-and-so, and you sort of think, well, it's not worked in the last few weeks. You have just said you don't have the, the, the capacity for it, but nothing ever stops um, that process. It's, it's, it's hardwired into them, and I think that's a lot to do with trying to unpack what this culture is, both in terms of how they understand command and what they know to be acceptable. Um, You know, a commander who complains, and one of their complaints about the other commanders is, nobody is feeding back to Hitler or to the high command the problems. The real question is, are they feeding it back? And if the answer is no, yet the explanation is the public generals, they exude confidence, they exude success, they talk about why they're going to be successful and if they're not being successful it's not because yeah, I don't have enough resources that's just not accepted it's because someone hasn't given me this or you know the weather gods have, have conspired against me um it's never them and 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 yet at the same time behind it all you 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 do wonder to what extent do they really understand that this campaign that they are trying to win and it's often you know localized goals They imagine that the rest of the Eastern Front has got all this success and it's just my area because I've been put into the hardest area. That's a theme in almost all of their letters. I'm in the toughest area. I've been given the toughest command, which probably suits the narrative of, well, you know, I'm the kind of guy they would give that to. So that fits there. But they imagine everyone else has got many more resources, nowhere near the losses I've got and um, is just, uh, you know, I'm I'm the long suffering uh, individual. Um, and again, I think that just says a lot about the, the, the culture. If we can see that across so many of them, Rommel has
1: elements to, of, of this as well, um, I think it says more about individuals. In fact, it could be, could it be argued that notwithstanding well, their own um, issues of um, tactics and or operation operational strategy, that um, these four individuals were not in point of fact the cause of the failures of Operation Typhoon?
0: No, yes, I think there's, there's a lot of factors in that, right? Um, uh, yeah, and, and, and it almost poses the question, if Barbarossa hasn't been successful until that point with many more resources available, uh, what are the opportunities available to them in October 1941? And how again where are they of the problems they're facing, not just even operationally. At that point, when they start to encounter, you know, this this change in the in the in the in the, in the season, the Rasputitsa begins. This time without roads, they, uh, which two are they? They are Reinhardt and Guderian, who start blaming it on weather gods. That's the term they keep using. Oh, the weather gods have conspired against us anyone who knew anything about this area and you would think they would be the people to study this or at least their staff for telling them would know that in october this is what happens and in all the historiography you read ah but it was the worst winter in 130 years no um i'm not saying it wasn't bad but this idea that this is something exceptional what it never rains in october no it always rains in october And it's going to be like this. And there are very few sealed roads. All of this is completely clear. And frankly, when you get into the staff work, such as I've I've been looking at that, you find evidence of this. The staffing is not the problem. It's the delusional uh, command who I think, for whatever reason, but I think it's a lot to do with what I kind of call this national socialist military thinking. I think we need to start thinking along those lines. We know that they are national socialist because... Again, ask the question, how many of these men, 150 you know, divisional commanders, 44 corps commanders, 13 army commanders, how many resign in disgust at the, at the, at the terrible things that they're doing and the mass murder of women and children? All of none. So there's your National Socialist credentials very much on display. What we've not engaged with is, as military historians with all this wonderful work that's been done to show their role in this ubiquitous criminality is to say for the guy who can sit there and listen to this and have no problem with it you need to buy into a certain worldview. and nazism abrogates the early modern enlightenment right it's, a, it's turned on its head law and morality they don't care for that this is a this is a whole new way This is the new national socialist man Well, one of the questions I've always had is, to what extent does it also abrogate, if you buy into this worldview, Clausewitz? In fact, I was fascinated to read from one of the uh, interrogations of Kleist, another one of our Panzer Group commanders, that he said, yeah, Clausewitz, I actually know nothing about him. I never read any of his work. And I thought, wow, okay, that's that's kind of instructive and remarkable, because some of you guys really don't seem to adhere to what I would call some basic tenets of of strategy or operations. And if that comment is anything like instructive, it might be something to do with their education. They would have been educated long before, as as young officers, before the Nazis came on the scene. But certainly after that point, and you know, and Hitler is obviously reimagining uh, operations in, in his own way. Anyway, I mean, he believes in the primacy of will. That's always been his his mantra. To what extent is earlier or have earlier ideas of German What we call kampfgeist so you know fighting spirit and this idea of you know will to victory they predate national socialism but are they put on steroids by this idea of you know primacy of will that you know that one man can change everything just as hitler always said in all these speeches and always emphasizes this and that then begins to pervert their internal ability to understand well look there are many factors that are going to undermine you no matter who you are as a commander but if you say oh mind you i can't uh i can't do this this is just not possible well your career is not going to go anywhere is it so you begin to adopt the language where everyone else is conspiring there someone else is at fault or maybe the weather gods and i think that that perverts things not least of which you're being personally enriched by being in this command position Uh, it's good for your ego it's good for your status it's good for your pocketbook There's a lot of reasons to buy in and then blame everyone else for not reporting the problems. Um, And that comes out again in the letters. So, yeah, lots to unpack.
1: Would it be true to say that, in point of fact, you don't really care for any of these four individuals as individuals?
0: (laughs) That would be very true to say. Look, and that's not about trying to, um, I don't know, you know, it's. If one asks the question perhaps differently um, in certain attributes, and as I said before with Guderian, right, is he able to do things very well? Yes, he's able to do things very well. We could make a comment that uh, you know, Goebbels was a very good propaganda minister, but no one ever would and nor should they write that book because it cannot be separated from the question of, yes, but what was he what was his message, and how? What was the effect of that message? It's 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 reprehensible. No decent person would ever do that. So yes, that these guys are in some areas of their job good at it, but in terms of the final analysis, it's not ambiguous what they're fighting for. That's very clear to them. Um, it's also clear to people like Margrethe. At one point, she's she's writing about oh the Japanese have attacked, and I hope and I wish much pain or something like this. I wish much pain on the British and the Americans. You know. She's not a passive observer. She's uh, got very real opinions. She's prepared to re- express them. And she's, you know, so we have to understand who these people are, what they're fighting for. And it's a very different worldview. We sometimes, I think, perhaps in earlier generations in looking at this, oh, they were just like, you know, our generals, just different uniforms, different you know, languages, different, all that. But, you know, there was, there was Rommel and there was Montgomery. Well, the real question is, what are these guys... Really understand this war to be about? What are they fighting for? And when they know what this means for occupied Europe, are they okay with that? Time after time, the answer is yes, they have no problem with it. And that's not just a couple of them. Again, it's hard to find any example of men who resign in disgust. So that's a ubiquitous view. It says a lot about culture. Um, we you know, we derive. It's one of the things I got from the social psychology. We derive our sense of what is normal from our social group. And although, although we all would like to think of ourselves as independent actors, we are often deferring to that world. Um, and uh, I think we need to, you know, bear that in mind for understanding what seems to be. You know, around, I don't think it goes back to uh, Hannah uh, around the whole um, uh, banality of evil. This idea, you know, we kind of imagine, oh, they must be all evil and doing terrible things. But yeah, they're everyday people. They're just able to perform in this way, and it's kind of shocking um, how ubiquitous
1: that, uh, that, uh, that 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 sentiment is. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor, for being so kind and speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You're listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you very much, Professor. Thank you very much, Charles.